Welcome to the Explore Words, Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, Paul Rogers, Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford and a regular contributor on global security for open democracy talks about the life-changing impact of the conflict on the residents of Ukraine, creating a European refugee crisis comparable to the Second World War. Originally recorded at Bradford Literature Festival 2022, Roger explores what the conflict in Ukraine means for the world order and whether Putin's actions will create a chain of events that could change the course of history. I'm here today to welcome our uh, amazing speakers um, to speak about Ukraine, Chechnya and the struggle for freedom, especially um, in the context of everything that's that's happen, happening right now. So I will um, start by uh, just I- introducing our speakers here. To my uh, immediate left, we have Dara, Daria Mattingly. She's a historian, a Leverhulme uh, Le- Early Career Fellow at the University of Cambridge, where she received her doctorate degree and now teaches Soviet and contemporary Russian history. Daria provided research assistant to Anne Applebaum in her book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine in 2017, and translated it into Ukrainian. Daria's forthcoming own book explores identifiable and memorial traces of the rank and file perpetrators of the 1932-1933 famine in Ukraine. And we also have with us uh, Anna Gunin, and Anna is a translator from Russian of literary fiction. Uh, narrative nonfiction and stories that straddle genres. Her translations include Chernobyl Prayer by Svetlana Alexeyevich, co-translated, um, Pavel Bajov's folk tales in the Penguin Anthology, Russian magic tales from Pushkin to Platonov, Oleg Pavlov's prize-winning novel Requiem for a Soldier, and Mikhail Eldin's lyrical memoir of the Chechen Wars, The Sky Wept Fire. She's taught postgrad translation at the University of Bristol and City University, as well as in workshops and summer schools. So I'm sure you all join us, giving them a, a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, um, uh, Anna and uh, Daria, um, we, we've been talking all the way through lunch about um, Ukraine, Chechnya, the literary tradition of Russia and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I was, one of the things that came up uh, when, we were, when we started that discussion was, um, uh, Anna, you spoke about um, some, uh, uh, quotes you'd found. Uh, I don't know if, you, if that seems like a, a, a place to start our discussion. That's all right. There's a couple of quotes um, while reflecting on the theme of the... Firstly, thank you for, for coming. It's wonderful to be here in Bradford. It's my first time here, and I hope it's not my last. It's a really interesting city. So uh, while reflecting on the um, themes for the discussion, there were two quotes in particular that sprang to mind. They're both from books I um, translated, one I co-translated, one I translated. Um, So I'll read those. The first is from Svetlana Alexievich's Chernobyl Prayer. So Svetlana Alexievich set um, herself the task in all of her, um, she has what she calls a, a cycle of books themed on understanding the red man so that can, can also be translated as the Soviet man, you know, red, of course, being as in Bolshevik, and understanding the cult-like mindset that was prevalent in the Soviet Union. So from one of the monolo- monologues in Chernobyl Prayer, one of the 
the interviewee says, there's that renowned Bolshevik slogan, with an iron fist, we shall herd the human race into happiness. The psychology of a rapist, the materialism of a caveman, defying history, defying nature, and it's still going on. One utopia collapses and another comes to take its place. But this was written in the 1990s, and it's every bit as relevant today, sadly, because this is a repeat. Um, what we're seeing, of course, in um, the Moscow's behavior to um, its neighbors, sadly. The other is from Mikhail Eldin's um, memoir on the First and Second Chechen Wars. Mikhail was a journalist, and actually a cultural correspondent, not interested at all in military affairs or even politics, but he ended up in the heart of both of those wars. And um, he ends his very powerful uh, memoir, which I'd, I'd very strongly recommend um, you consider buying and reading. And in fact, it's available for, for free as an ebook on Kobo at the moment, so you can you can, do, you can follow that up to find it. So in his epilogue, he says, you can only solve the issues of self-determination for nations and peoples in a civilized way if you live in a civilized world. But the world of those people, peoples who had the cruel misfortune to live on the one-eighth of the, of the earth that was under the patronage of Russia can hardly be called civilized which again, and, and then he, he continues about talking about the empire and the Chechen people. And the entire epilogue is, reads as a prequel, as a prediction of what is, um, the Ukrainian people are now facing, that struggle they're facing to retain their autonomy and freedom from Moscow. Thank you, thank you. I think that seems like a really great place to start. So over the next sort of hour, um, how this is going to run is I'm going to ask some, some questions from, 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 from you two both. Um, and then we're going to open it to the floor if people have questions as well. I think what's really, really exciting about um, having Daria and Anna with us is that we've seen as the, as the war has cranked up into another gear in Ukraine this year, that um, uh, where certain gaps are, I think, in how we think about that, that, that region of, uh, of the world, that kind of because of the dominance of Russia and its various empires and the Soviet Union. If we think about those areas of the world at all, we're, we're often likely to think about them through the lens of Russia and Moscow in, in, in particular, Russian culture, Russian language, and so on, and so on. But actually, that whole area is, of course, full of a number of countries and peoples with different literary traditions. I know you're both scholars and fans of literature and different political histories. Um, and so... The first question I really wanted to ask um, was, uh, first of all, to Dario and then perhaps to Anna, was um, in terms of you guys knowing about, you know, knowing about Ukraine, knowing about uh, Russian language, Chechen literature, knowing about Belarus, like, um, do you think there are differences between the kind of mindset, whether that's politically or in literature, of, for instance, kind of Ukraine and Russia or, or perhaps Chechnya? Well, I would start with Ukrainian literature which um, classical canon of it was created in 19th century in opposition to Russian imperial dominance. So it was defining Ukraine foremost. 
as the victim of empire, as um, colony. And I, I wanted to add to you what um, Anna was saying uh, with the quotes, really powerful, is that in a civilized world. But with Russia, when we think about Russia as an empire, we immediately think in terms of European empires, which had colonies overseas. So citizens within the metropole had rights. They were create, created by divine right to rule and to share their culture, whereas Russia did not have overseas colonies. And I think in part it impacted how its own population was seen and what we are seeing today, how Russian citizens um, who participate in the war in Ukraine are treated by their superiors and their government as such as resources. And we were discussing that with Javad and um, Anna, that uh, it's self-colonization, internal colonization still taking place today. And as a result, R Ukrainian literature, making a full circle, um, it was asserting the right of Ukrainian people to be masters of their fate, and as well as being victims of Russian aggression, and uh, there is a persistent theme of Ukrainians being cheated by the Russians, whether it is a female protagonist, she's duped into believing that she could make it, or if it is a poet, uh, they are persecuted for their political views. So we have many themes in Russian, uh, in Ukrainian classical literature, um, reflecting that relationship between Ukraine and Moscow at the time St. Petersburg, as well as common themes in any Central European, or European for that matter, um, literature of, again, self-determination, liberation, and um, Shakespearean tropes as well, um, Shakespearean themes, sorry, not tropes, but that trope of self-determination obviously dominated Ukrainian literature of the 19th century. Um, that's what I could add to that question. Brilliant, thank you, thank you. Anna? And certainly there's a difference in the mindset of um, a large swathe of Russians because, you know, inevitably we're going to be falling back on stereotypes and generalizing, but um, for the kind of Russian who supports the war of Moscow's war in Ukraine at the moment, um, certainly, um, and who supports Putin, and or who supports not necessarily Putin, but um, Russian imperialism, Russian expansion um, beyond its you know, legally recognized borders, um, there is a huge uh, gulf between that, their mindset and the mindset of um, large swathes of people in Chechnya, as in Ukraine. Um, uh, the, Johar Dudaev, who was the first president of free Chechnya, in when Chechnya won independence in the declared independence, became independent in the early 90s, declared that every Chechen is, uh, I think he said a brigadier general, or some, some kind of top military um, uh, chief, that every Chechen feels like Chechnya didn't have feudalism, and every Chechen feels like uh, they have a right to freedom. And, that's certainly not true of people who follow Putin. 
um, the uh, Ruski Mir, which is, uh, translates as Russian world, um, that ideology of the Kremlin is very much about promoting one, um, the Russian people as being the ethnic norm, the Russian language, again, as being the norm. There are actually laws in place restricting the teaching of other languages to a certain number of maximum number of hours per week of, of the languages of all the other peoples in the Russian Federation. There are huge numbers of peoples, huge numbers of language. This is a, a population where 20% of them are ethnic, uh, of Muslim ethnicity. And that's all ignored. Everything, the only thing that's um, pushed as dominant is the Orthodox Church, the Russian um, people, the Russian language, and Russian culture in a very sort of unreconstructed imperialist um, presentation of it. So yes, that contrasts very starkly with Chechen mentality. And even, even in this era of um, um, Chechnya, as with Chechen, Chechen independence having partly failed because Chechnya is within the Russian Federation, Nevertheless, um, there is, Chechnya does enjoy a considerable degree of autonomy, which is partly a result of that difference. And that's really that's really interesting. I suppose one one uh, you know both of you talking in different ways there about um, there being a sort of sense of uh, uh, you know Russian coloniality and empire and, and and these kinds of things. I think sometimes it's it's obviously we, we in the West we're sort of like aware of that you know, aware of that history to some degree. But certainly I don't think it gets, uh, you know, at the same time when the idea of decolonizing our universities or our cultural establishments in the West seems to be a, a super salient and important discussion to be having. It seems to me there's, there's not, you know, there's not, um, we don't think about, for instance, necessarily that as Timothy Snyder, the historian, is very clear about saying he thinks that Russia was fighting a colonial war against the Ukraine, for instance. Um, or, you know, so my, my question is really that idea of uh, a sense of, I suppose, the post-colonial or the colonial, or, uh, in what way does that, in what way does that affect either how people are producing politics, producing literature, producing themselves in those countries, and in what way does it affect kind of the politics of how that's disseminated in the West? That's a crucial question. About, uh, because uh, the cases of Ukraine and Chechnya in that respect are different. Chechnya is still part of Russian Federation. Um, and with Ukraine, the situation is different. Ukraine gained its independence in 1991. And many historians, including, I already mentioned today in a different talk, uh, Serhii Plohi and Anna Balbam, it was Ukraine that uh, voted for. Um, to leave on the 1st of December 1991, that led to the dissolution of the USSR because it was constituent republic, second in terms of population and industry size in the USSR. And one of the founders, unwilling founders of the USSR in 1922, when its territory was taken over by the Bolsheviks. Um, so in 1991, since 1991, Ukraine was writing its own history. And of course, it's, Ukraine as a state 
turned to the historiography that existed before the Soviet rule or existed in, in diaspora in the West, in Ukrainian diaspora. And the story that was of the imperial domination. Uh, similar, if I was to compare with Great Britain, it would be similar relationship between Ireland and Great Britain, or England. Um, yes, it did have its own intellectuals um, who vouched for independence, like Ireland, but yet it also had Oscar Wilde, who is classic of British literature. I might be mistaken. That's, that's right. I think, yeah, that's yeah it, it's not Irish, Irish, yeah. and it's written in English. All his works are written in English. Lisa's, James Joyce, um, but it's English-speaking authors. And um, for somebody from Eastern Europe, they are British. Likewise, Gogol, a native of Ukraine, who grew up in Ukraine, wrote about Ukraine, but he. Uh, employed imperial gaze, um, Ukrainians became folk for him, even though he himself was Ukrainian. And um, Chekhov, um, who put on in census um, Malorosz, or little Ukrainian himself, identified as Ukrainian, he was a Russian writer, so was Gogol. So you have um, that intertwining history of cultural tradition, cultural memory of Ukraine, and yet you have that diaspora and pre-Soviet 19th century romanticism in constructing what it was to be Ukrainian. So in the last 30 years, unlike in Chechnya, we have, um, Ukraine had a free reign in constructing its own past in historiography, in cultural production, in cultural texts, in uh, politics, and as a result, we see revolutions when autocrats were got rid of by uh, people taking it to the streets, something unthinkable um, since 2000 in Russia. And um, so when you say about um, interplay between literature and culture and politics, it was inevitably um, uh, intertwined in Ukraine in the last 30 years, and uh, which led uh, to construction of identity completely, not completely, but different to that of Russia and different to that of a red man, which Anna mentioned. Um, and Alexievich herself, a Nobel laureate um, and a prominent journalist, writer and historian, I dare say, uh, with her books, uh, she describes experience of a generation that came of age or formational years. Formation years took place during the Soviet Union, yet we have 30 years already of independent Ukraine. Uh, the whole generation, 30-year-olds, grew up not knowing one president in power for 20 years. Or, in fact, there are 20-year-olds in Russia who knew nobody by Putin in office of the president. So we have a, a nation, a political nation, that has been formed uh, by culture, history, and politics. And um, I hope Anna would agree with me on that one. <laughs> And I think it's interesting there are the three strong men as, who stand in opposition to what Daria is explaining has been Ukraine's fate these past three decades. Uh, Lukashenko, Putin. So Lukashenko, of course, in Belarus, um, which didn't shake off the Soviet tradition, Soviet um, system of, of, of tyrannical political management, 
um, Putin in Moscow and Kadyrov in Chechnya, um, where so you have autocracy in those um, three um, countries. Uh, well, um, in this, in Moscow in um, Grozny, within the, which is in, within the Russian Federation, but as I said, um, Kadyrov has quite a degree of autonomy, and um, they say he is the, se the second most powerful person in the Russian Federation after Putin. He's the only person who's not, who won't quake in his boots about worrying what Putin, whether Putin will approve of his actions. And people have even in Russia talked of whether he could be a potential successor to Putin and end up running Moscow. They certainly were talking about that so a few years ago. And yeah, Lukashenko in, in Minsk in Belarus. Um, but along with the um, preservation of that um, tyrannical system in those lands, um, it's worth pointing out that within Russian literature, there has always been a tradition of cultural figures writing texts that are between, between if you read them between the lines, you'll see um, what the author is actually getting at. And um, they developed ways to evade censorship already going back to the 19th century. So it does absolutely inform and shape the culture that emerges with a contemporary Ukrainian could write very freely about anything um, without having to worry about the secret police coming knocking on the door. Um, in Russia, there is, there, uh, there's a very complex system of persecution of certain people who speak out. It's very contradictory. Um, there are and have been during Putin's rule, um, prominent people who um, within um, not just politics, but within um, publishing, within the cultural sphere, who have um, had some very radical opposition to the Kremlin ideology, Kremlin narrative, to Kremlin um, promoted values in society. But many of them have run into problems. For example, um, the publisher Ilya Karmiltsev, who was himself a lyricist of a a very famous um, rock band in uh, the end of the Soviet times, uh, Nautilus Pampilius, but he also became, he was also a poet and a writer and became a publisher of radical books. And he had a, a, a publishing firm called Ultra Cultura, which was um, the publisher of the first book I translated, which was on this, the Chechen wars called I Am a Chechen, published here by the author German Sadolayev from Chechnya. And rather than the Putin or the Kremlin leadership sending people to throw him in the gulag or something like that, um, there would be tax raids to try to find, I think they came up with a, an illegal, a pirated copy of Microsoft um, operating system or something. They'll, they'll find all different ways. They put pressure on the distributors of his books they'll find all kinds of devious KGB-style ways of in, um, asserting pressure on people who do speak out, while also leaving many prominent um, voices of opposition untouched. So they tried to promote self-censorship, 
um, but also while maintaining this illusion that there are certain freedoms. Of course, that has changed very much now. The, the mask has dropped. And um, independent journalists, of, wh of whom there were significant numbers still, have fled. And many of them are now in beyond Russia's borders, sadly. Mm. That's a really interesting answer. Thank you. And there's a, an, an, another question that would sort of lead, lead, lead me to, really, which is just... The interesting way that you guys were talking about, you were, certainly Anna, you were talking about um, the history of sort of like um, stuff being between the lines and this in Russian literature in different ways. Um, I know that uh, increasingly, certainly in Ukraine, uh, certainly some, you, you were telling me this about in Belarus as well, there is, a, there is a feeling from some dissidents or some nationalists or some people who want freedom for those countries, profoundly bilingual countries, I know, especially in the case of Ukraine and all this, like, um, I've heard people say to me that in Ukraine, someone can talk to you, historically someone talks, says something to you in Russian, you answer in Ukrainian, they are, that's, and that's, but I know that there are, there are people, first of all, there are cultural producers, activists in this who, who want to say that, that we don't, we shouldn't, we don't want to use Russian right now, you know what I mean, first of all, and, 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 uh, and also I, I see a lot of stuff, uh, a, a lot of ideas, people talking about how like certain kinds of Russian dissident literature or a certain kind of a sort of ironic distance away from a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, worship of a Dostoevsky or a Tolstoy or something like this can actually be uh, an important part of kind of Russian imperial sort of colonial self-identity or something like that. That's a very, I'm aware, slightly verbose question, but I hope um, <laughs> you guys will see what I'm sort of uh, groping towards in the dark. So I don't know if I can throw that at you first, well, though, yeah. You made so many points. I don't know where to start. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I will start with the last point about imperial decolonizing Russian literature and not using the Russian language. Uh, okay, I don't want to draw parallels with Hitler, but um, after Hitler, it doesn't mean we can't study German culture. Or um, And I know it has been, there is many studies about the trauma inflicted on German speakers. Uh, German-speaking Jews who escaped the Holocaust and their relation with their mother tongue. So I would uh, make a statement that let's not uh, let Putin steal Russian culture and Russian language from Ukraine as well, because it is a bilingual um, country. And as we know, protection of Russian speakers was the last thing on the mind, on the mind of who is behind the war in Ukraine. Um, and in fact, Russian language in Ukraine is slightly different to Russian language spoken in Russia. Not to the same extent as Australian is different to British English, but still it evolved and it developed in the last 30 years according to its own patterns, melodics and vocabulary and what's not. So, yes, and it is a very sensitive issue during the war. So the calls of people and cultural um, activists who call um, to stop using Russian language could be understood from that perspective. Uh, as to decolonizing Russian culture, indeed, if we critically read texts by Lermontov and Pushkin and their treatment of Chechnya as the other, which we discussed with Anna, as well as of Ukraine saying that, oh, those uh, slightly savage um, Ukrainians, they dance and they sing, but they are very expressive, they are feminine, but they don't have cold mind. They are not suited for intellectual work. So we can see that othering and 
in a way, Orientalism practiced towards Ukrainians. They are like us, but slightly not like us by employing that in cultural texts. And that's how Pushkin described. Doesn't under, it, not to downplay his um, works, and, but if we are to read him critically, we will notice um, Lermontov and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky as well. And we will notice many, many things and misogyny in uh, Dostoevsky's works, actually, how he, his views and his notes, um, for example, when he first visited London, he couldn't bear the sight of British women, and he was quite explicit about that. He said, how could they go to work at the factory? And he's talking about British, um, Victoria and Britain. And they get drunk and they drink beer after their shift in the factory. And they're not looking after their children. And they fall on the pavement and their children standing over them. How could they? they no way you can compare to maternal Russian women and who look after and tend to, to the oven and look after their children, etc. And he, emancipation and women's rights was not on his agenda at all. So if we look at Russian literature and reassess it, yes, it is presentism because we are asking present-day questions, but nevertheless, it's a very rich material. And the first point you were making? I can't remember. That was a very good answer. <laughs> no, <okay. laughs> that, that good. I think I was just... I'll stop uh, here. Yeah, no. yeah. Cool, thank you. That's, that's very interesting because another person who's not from the 19th century, another person who is a great, uh, famous poet in Russian, Brodsky, uh, had a, uh, there's a recording you can find on YouTube where he's reading a poem that's very um, politically incorrect towards Ukrainians and towards Ukraine, Ukrainians' aspirations for nationhood. And um, the, um, there are two themes in terms of the Russian language and the dominance of the Russian language and also sort of the ownership of the Russian language, whether we should think of Moscow as having, as, uh, having full ownership of it or whether uh, Ukrainians can take ownership of it or other peoples. Um, the, um, there's also a twin, the twin themes. There's also um, what is called in Russian chauvinism, which is, you know, as you can hear, it sounds like chauvinism. It's a term that's much broader. We tend to use the word chauvinistic in, in English, meaning sexist, basically. In Russian, it means racist, imperialist, culturally arrogant, believing in... And there's also another term called... Um, that from the Soviet times, there was um, this... Again, an illusion in the Soviet ideology that all of these many, many nations that made up the Soviet state were um, in what's called the friendship of nations, Druzhba Narodov. It's one of these slogans, Soviet propaganda slogans, the friendship of nations. If you look at a ruble note from Soviet times, it would have lots of these different languages, you know, five rubles written in all these exotic-looking alphabets and so on um, from, from all of the languages of the Soviet um, territory. And at the same time, the reality was there was another term that was pushed. Russia is the big brother among this friendship of nations. Russia is always number one. <laughs> and is the, you know, all the other nations are the little brothers, basically. 
And so um, there are many Russians who I have personally encountered in different areas of academia, of culture, who I think are very much unaware. They haven't gone through a process of um, reassessing their own attitudes. And they've actually, um, they've, um, uh, in, they're imbued with this chauvinism, this chauvinistic, this sort of imperialistic attitude towards other peoples within um, uh, the former Soviet territories. And um, so it's, it does mean that there does need to be some fight back against that, um, because many of these people will think of themselves as being very anti-racist and not, not quite progressive, because Russia is um, a, a very different um, land with different values, different cultural values, and so on, spiritual values. Um, it's very much a blind spot in lots of, in most Russians, I would say. Um, coming back to the question of the Russian language, the domination of the Russian language, and whether that, how much that should be challenged, in what ways it should be challenged, or whether it should be challenged. I spent part of my year abroad when I was learning Russian at university um, here in the UK. Um, I spent part of that in Minsk, in the capital of Belarus, and it was at a very um, exciting time when Belarus had just become Belarus. Before that, it had the, old, the Russian name, Belarusia, and um, they declared the name of, they renamed their country in their own Belarusian language. Um, they had become independent, but very, very recently, they were beginning to rename the different um, streets and squares, one of the central squares became, so before, throughout the whole Soviet territory, you had um, Lenin Avenue everywhere, or, you know, Karl Marx Street, and um, it, there's even a film um, called um, The Irony of Fate that makes fun of how you can have the exact same name of, a, of a, uh, an address of a flat in Moscow and in St. Petersburg, and um, because everything was so... Um, uh, cookie cutter, identical everywhere, and controlled by the ideology. Um, and it was in an interesting time. The tram stops, they would announce half the time in the Belarusian names and half the time in the Russian names. So I got through ear, I got to hear how independent square sounds in Belarusian, which is actually much closer, the same as Ukrainian to Polish than to Russian. There's a lot that's mutually intelligible, but not. Uh, not absolutely not everything. And um, when coming back to Svetlana Alexievich, she is um, half Belarusian, half Ukrainian. Um, Chernobyl Prayer, which um, I co-translated by her, um, is set partly in Ukraine, but largely in the territory of Bel Belarus. Some of the words even uh, that some of her interviewees use are Belarusian. And... Um, that's, you know, because as, as Daria was saying, a different form of Russian can, you know, they, they, they're people speaking Russian, but they'll intersperse it with Belarusian words. You know, it's a, it happens very organically, very naturally. Um, but you, uh, Belarusian nationalists in Belarus attack her and take her to task for not writing her works in, Belarus, in, in the Belarusian language. Uh, on the other hand, if she, with her writing in Russian, gives her a huge audience. It means that people in all of those t states that now do have autonomy, you know, Ukraine, 
the Baltic states where you know, the younger generations are uh, turning away from the Russian language, they're more interested in learning English, but the older generations can read everything that's written in Russian. And to me, it seems that would be uh, a very exciting path forward for um, the Russian language and the cultures that emerge from that language to be reclaimed from so, so, such an interesting point, isn't it? Like we're saying to you, you know, why shouldn't Salman Rushdie write in English? Why shouldn't Gabriel Garcia Marquez write in Spanish? And so on? But yeah. I mean, that's, I, I think that's more or less taking us to time. I do very quickly want to ask uh, one final thing of you guys. Uh, I know some books have already been mentioned, but after all, you know, book fans, literature festival, all that kind of stuff. If I was to ask you um, whether there are sort of well, one or two contemporary bits of Ukrainian or Chechen or Belarusian literature that you would um, encourage people to have a read of, probably in English, is there, is there anything you think of? Uh, as a historian, I would recommend The Gates of Europe by Sergei Plahi or Red Famine by Anne Applebaum. But as a literary scholar, which I am not, but a avid reader, I would recommend um, Sergei Jadan's uh, work, Volga Varashilovgrad, and other works. Um, he's contemporary Ukrainian writer who touches upon different topics, including Russian invasion, well, Russian hybrid warfare in Donbass, um, Jadan. So I would recommend his works. Thank and, you. Yeah. So um, of contemporary writers writing in Russian, I would certainly say that one of the um, leading writers for many years has been Vladimir Sorokin. And if you haven't, if you're interested in Russian fiction that is certainly very anti-Putin, I would um, uh, turn to his books, which have been, um, they're very absurdist. They come from that Russia has, Russian literature has a very rich theme of absurdist, absurdism in its literature. And um, they're, um, he, they're very creative and playful and um, he has been accused of writing the blueprints for what the, the Kremlin has ended up um, right. doing. Mm -hmm. There's one, one book in particular, um, The Day of the Oprichnik, which is all about this descent into a medieval sort of dysphoric, dys dystopian world, which is very, very... Um, <laughs> Someone yeah. needs to, to stop writing books. Man. That's, <laughs> but, <laughs> but of um, referring... To, to those of you who are interested in uh, less contemporary works, I'd say there are a couple of books in particular that I personally think uh, are very revealing what's going on at, at the moment. One of them is um, Vasily Grossman's uh, short novel. That was actually an unfinished novel, but it it's, doesn't feel very unpolished, um, called Everything Flows, which isn't one of his big name novels. Um, uh, you know, the Life and Fate is, of course, the, the biggest name novel of his. But um, Everything Flows is an, is an extraordinary work and condensed. And if you like short books, it's perfect because it's much shorter. And um, it, it gives these extraordinary description, descriptions of the Holodomor and uh, is deeply informative on the Soviet era. And he wrote, he lived in Ukraine. This all took place in Ukraine. So it's a complex question, the identity of him, you know, whether, whether you would call him a Ukrainian writer or, uh, you know, writer within the Russian literary tradition. And the other book is, an, is a memoir by um, Anatoly Kuznetsov that was written um, back in the second half of the 20th century, although it's actually based on his diary entries during the 1930s. 
and the occupation of Kiev. And it's called Babi Yar, it's available in English translation, has been for many decades now. And that's an extraordinary book where he describes the parallels between living as a boy under Stalinism and then under German Nazi occupation and how similar the two regimes were. Thank yes. you. Can I Sorry, just um, quickly mm -hmm. jump on that? Um, because uh, Vasily Grossman would explain not only about um, Soviet, uh, but also about Ukrainian history, and it would position Ukraine from a historical perspective of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. And Vasily Grossman, I couldn't recommend hardly enough um, Everything Flows, uh, because it explains why ordinary people participate and become willing participants of uh, violent policies, state-sanctioned violence. And uh, it, it is based on real people. And um, in my mm -hmm. dissertation, I interviewed uh, his daughter, Vasily Grossman's daughter. And uh, every testimony you find in that book, and they are deeply moving. Every single person, every single, even a little wooden toy they're making took place in real life. It's, it reads like Alexievich documentary based on somebody's testimonies. Mm. Absolutely, I couldn't recommend that enough. Thank you. I'm sure you're going to join me in uh, thanking our distinguished uh, speakers that we've had today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.